cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, April 19th, 2011. Something a little bit different today. We'll see how this all goes here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We like to compare them to what God's Word actually says with this basic understanding that Jesus Christ, uh, God in human flesh, um, yeah, uh, he proved that he was God by raising himself from the dead. Here we are, it's Holy Week, okay? And this is the week, especially if you are attending a congregation or a church that uh, has some idea of well, the ancient liturgy, some idea of understanding that Easter is kind of a big deal, not because of Easter eggs and bunnies and 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 peeps and things like that. Oh, man, all of that stuff is just a distraction. But Easter's important because this is the day that the church remembers Christ's victorious resurrection from the dead. Because here's the deal. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, Christianity is false. It's a lie. If I could steal a line from the uh, the movie Young Frankenstein, which, by the way, is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, but anyway, you have, uh, you have Dr. Frankenstein, who's lecturing before a whole bunch of uh, medical students, and he's go- giving some explanation about something or other that has to do with the nervous system or whatever, and one, somebody travels all the way from Transylvania to help him realize his true destiny, that he's not a Frankenstein, but he's a Frankenstein, and, and to embrace his grandfather's work. And in the famous words of Gene Wilder, who played Dr. Frankenstein, he said, My grandfather's work was 
doo-doo. And then he sticks a knife into his leg by accident because he was so impassioned with uh, all of that kind of stuff. But here's the deal. Take that line and apply it to Christianity in this way. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, everything he did was false. It was doo-doo. It doesn't make a hill of beans worth of sense for you to be a Christian at all. In fact, if, if they find the bones of Jesus Christ moldering in some ossuary in, in, in Jerusalem, you should leave Christianity. I, I'm going to. I, you know, you, say, well, you make it sound like they're going to find. No, they're not. <laughs> Here's the reason why they're not going to find Jesus's bones. Are you ready? Because he was raised again on the third day. Yeah, there were eyewitnesses to this event, and even Jesus' enemies, the guys who crucified him, who murdered him, even they admit that that the tomb was empty on the third day. Why was it empty? Well, because he rose bodily from the grave. That's right. He, In fact, he invited his disciples, Thomas in particular, to touch him to put his fingers into the wounds. And he said that a a, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus ate fish with his disciples after he was crucified and raised from the dead. And what does this all prove? It proves that, well, that uh, there ain't a religious claim out there on the planet that even comes close to this. Not even close at all. And when you take the time to examine the evidence, the evidence points you to the fact that, well... This man, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the God of the Jews in human flesh, he's got a credible claim because he proved it by raising himself from the dead, and this is most certainly what happened. So if you have a view of Scripture that's different than Jesus, if your teaching uh, is different than Jesus, different than what the apostles taught, you ain't teaching the truth. If you're telling Christians that they need to embrace evolutionary theory and all this other kind of garbage— uh, you're basically telling people that uh, Jesus' opinion regarding this stuff doesn't matter and that you know better than Jesus. Yeah, I just work from the basic idea, I don't know better than Jesus. I mean, seriously, I, I don't even I don't even know the proper calorie-to-exercise ratio yet to figure out how to properly maintain a, a healthy physique. How on earth could I possibly know what happened at the beginning of time? You, you understand what I'm saying? Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We have two items on the agenda today. Two, just two. You're going, two? Yeah, it doesn't sound like you, Chris. Yeah, I know, but if you remember last week, I said that I was going to be having somebody on the uh, program from uh, the Answers in Genesis ministry. And uh, I'm happy to announce that earlier today, I recorded an interview with Dr. Terry Mortensen from Answers in Genesis. This guy is a scientist. And, uh, well, he doesn't actually believe evolutionary theory. We had a talk about uh, Guybersons uh, from Biologos, the uh, Giberson, Guyberson, I don't know how to pronounce it. But anyway, Carl Guyberson, Giberson of uh, Biologos, his article on the CNN uh, blog last week where he claimed that Jesus would be an evolutionist if he were alive today. I mean, talk about hubris. Talk about Talk about ridiculousness. I mean, seriously, it's like they're trying to, you know, it's 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 like they're trying to, you know, hijack Jesus and turn him into something that he never was and isn't. Because Jesus, by the way, it's not like he's dead and gone. 
he's actually sitting at the right hand of the Father and uh, and reigning and ruling. I mean, if I, yeah, we don't we do not worship a dead and gone guy. We worship the resurrected and living uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, uh, the. <laughs> The Lagos made flesh, if you would. Read John chapter 1. Anyway, so I uh, I interviewed uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen. I'll be playing that for you in just a couple of minutes. And um, and then uh, and then we're going to be doing a sermon review in hour number two. I, I don't think I've done a sermon yet on the movie Inception, but I, this is one of those bait-and-switch sermons. Um, if you follow... Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. I might sound like something of a workaholic, you know, it's just that I'm, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say I'm highly organized, but let's just say that I have a system for catching things and throwing them into a couple of different bins. And if you, uh, if, uh, if you subscribe to the RSS feed for one of my blogs, I have a couple that I, that I run. One of them is known as the Museum of Idolatry. This is a blog that I have done for well, four or five years now, and it is a it is the world's largest collection of idolatry anywhere in the world, and it's all web based. And in fact, if uh, you want to, I don't want to say have a good laugh, but at times it could be funny uh, in a in a, like a disgusting like bang your head against you know frustrative brain explosion kind of way. Uh, you can vis- visit the Museum of Idolatry. The uh, website for this. Um, little biblical name here is a little leaven dot com. A little leaven dot com. If you follow me there, uh, and you and you're up to date on the latest and greatest uh, exhibits in the Museum of Idolatry, then you know that last week I put up a um, a screenshots. Uh, well, a, a, a couple, somebody sent me photographs of a postcard that was sent out uh, by a church in Mesa, Arizona, entitled "Church on the Journey." That's their new name. And uh, the name of the sermon series is Safe Sex, the Sermon Series. Now, don't get worried. Don't get worried. I'm not going to actually be playing any of the sermons from that uh, series to review here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, that let's just say that those kind of sermons just, yeah. That I I've reviewed a few of them in the past, and I have no desire to review any of them anymore. But anyways, it was kind of interesting. They sent out a postcard, and the name of it is you know, Safe Sex. The sermon series, and so on, and this is like one of the weirdest uh, marketing flyers that I've ever seen a church send out. And on the one side, it says "safe sex," and it's got pictures of condoms, and uh, and uh, and the subheading is "biblical protection for maximum pleasure." I am not making that up. And um, and then the name of the sermon. Here's the names of the sermons in the sermon series. Uh, number one, Porn Sunday. Number two, Marriage Protection. Week number three, Don't Get Married Until dot dot dot. And then week number four is entitled The Talk, with uh, which also is advertised as having live question and answer period during uh, week four's sermon series. Anyway. Um, on the flip side of that particular postcard mailer, though, <laughs> this is just one of those weird things. I mean, you got to see it to believe it. On the flip side of it, the other side, it, it has a um, an advertisement for this year's Easter egg hunt. Uh, target uh, uh, Target gift cards for all kids in the church. Uh, Easter egg hunt. Uh, a kids egg hunt. Family portraits. Breakfast pictures with the Easter bunny, and it's all free. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, wow. Um, 
I don't even know where to begin to unravel all of that. But anyway, in honor of the fact that this is their first exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry, um, I decided that I'm going to be reviewing a sermon that they recently did entitled Inception. And, uh, you know, it's supposedly, you know, Inception, you know, y'all see the movie uh, last summer. Anyway, you'll get what I'm talking about here. It's kind of a bait and switch because uh, even though it's named Inception, the sermon doesn't really talk too much about the movie. But, uh, you know, of course, you know, we all know that uh, getting those seekers, those religious seekers into your church, all it takes is for you to say that you're going to be doing a sermon on a major blockbuster movie and, you know, they'll show up in droves. Of course, you know, not nearly as big as the droves as, that you'll get if you um, do a sermon series offering to give you biblical protection for maximum pleasure when it comes to the area of safe sex. Anyway, so that's what we're going to do today. So I got uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen and then a bad sermon review on uh, the movie. You know, it's not really about the movie Inception. It's just called Inception, but it talks about dreams which seems to be the big thing here. And uh, so that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just, you know, just two things. And so I kind of cheated today. Um, uh, you know, w- when I contacted Answers in Genesis and I talked to their, um, their uh, you know, their publicity person uh, to set up the interview. Now, I had originally hoped to get Ken Ham, Ham on, but his, his schedule's a little bit full. But, um, you know, Dr. Terry Mortensen, he knows what he's doing. But uh, what was funny is, is that, they 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 promised me a half hour, and I thought, oh man, is there any way I can stretch this out? <laughs> so I cheated. I cheated. It's it's true. I just don't tell Doctor Mortensen I did this, because otherwise he won't come back on the pro- program. But when I set the timer when we started recording, and uh, and I just ignored it when <laughs> when we got to the end. <sighs> So and it, by the way, if it, it, y'all, when I do interviews, my goal is to, to basically have a conversation with the person, and you all get to listen in on it. That's the idea. So, um, but uh, anyway, the the occasion for the interview with Dr. Mortensen is uh, Carl Giberson, Giberson, whatever his name is. His uh, his CNN religion blog post entitled uh, "My Take: Jesus Would Believe in Evolution, and So Should You." So we talk about some of the claims of this particular so-called scientific article that Guyverson put together and posted at the CNN blog. And uh, so let, let me, in fact, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Terry Mortensen. Dr. Terry Mortensen has a Ph.D. in the history of geology from the University of Coventry in England and an MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. Dr. Mortensen has lectured on the creation-evolution controversy in 18 countries in 18 countries since the late 1970s. And so, I mean, this is a guy who he knows what's going on evolutionarily, and uh, we talked about a lot of things from uh, the the human genome uh, genetics, uh, to, you know, all kinds of stuff, and the implications of this whole evolutionary thing. So tell you what we're going to do. We're going to just dive right in then to my interview uh, recorded earlier today with Dr. Terry Mortensen, and uh, I'll take a break partway through to pay some bills, and then when we come back, you know, we'll finish that up and then sermon review in the second hour. So here we go. All right, on the line I have uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen from uh, Answers in Genesis. And uh, Dr. Mortensen, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I read this uh, article that um, uh, Carl Giberson from the Biologos Foundation uh, put out and was published on the uh, CNN uh, religion blog. 
And I was stunned by the claims that he's making, uh, namely that uh, Jesus, uh, if he were alive today, would be an evolutionist. Um, is there any evidence that Jesus is or ever was an evolutionist? Uh, there's absolutely none, and on the contrary, there's uh, plenty of evidence in the Gospels that Jesus took Genesis 1 to 11 as literal history. Mm-hmm. Well, so, uh, well, but their claim is, is that if Jesus were alive today, because God, all truth is God's truth, that that means because evolution has been uh, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, that because all truth is God's truth, that Jesus would side with the evolutionary uh, scientists and say that evolution was the means by which God created the world. Uh, what's your response to that? Well, first of all, um, you, you've got... Um You've given me some very elusive phrases or uh, words, which are are commonly thrown around in our culture. All truth is God's truth. What in the world does that mean? Uh, Of course, all true statements are going to be statements that God would agree with, because he is the God of truth. Right. But not all truth claims are true. Not all statements that are that are uh, declared to be proven truth, are true. So there's lots and lots of people saying that something is true. There's lots of things that scientists say are true that are not actually true. That's just a claim. And, uh, you know, the history of science is littered with all kinds of examples where people said something was scientifically true, and it wasn't. I mean, for many, many years, uh, people said that that life spontaneously generated from non-living matter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was proclaimed as a scientific fact, truth. But uh, uh, Pascal and Reddy showed with scientific experiments that this was false. It was not true. So um, the, the statement that all truth is God's truth is, is such a vague statement that it's meaningless. Well, I, th- I think the way they're using it here is is that because in their minds, uh, evolutionary theory has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Apparently that if we were just, you know, go into the courtroom and lay out all the evidence, any rational, sane human being would right. say, oh, yeah, well, see, that's how we all got here. And, 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 and yet what I find their claims, even on the scientific front, even though I'm not a scientist, to fall woefully short uh, – for instance, uh, they're they're making uh, claims that the Human Genome Project and other projects to uh, map the genes of uh, other primates have proven that, uh, that we we all pretty much have the same DNA with some varying small degree of difference in, in the DNA. And I find claims like that to be, um, well, let's just say not completely forthright. Are you familiar with Craig Venter from the uh, Human Genome Project? Uh, he recently was spoke on a panel in, at the University of Arizona with uh, with uh, was it Dawkins, Richard uh, or Christopher Hitchens, one of those two atheist guys was there, and he kind of threw a, a scientific Molotov cocktail out into the middle of the uh, discussion there, basically claiming that this idea that there's a a, a common tree of life, uh, that his work in the Human Genome Project has proven that that's not the case. He said there might be a bush with lots and lots and lots of different little mini branches. But he uh, he basically says that he doesn't believe in this uh, this common descent tree. Um, when we look at the, uh, gen- the uh, you know, the human genome and, and chimpanzees and stuff like that, I mean, is it true that there's only like, you know, 8 to 10 percent difference in our genes and that pretty much we all have a common DNA? 
Well, um, they still have not nailed down precisely um, how much difference there is. But let's um, we're, we're talking about uh, millions of pieces of the genetic code that are different when we talk about 10%. So this is no small thing. Uh, even a child can look at an ape at the zoo and say, you know, they are a lot like us. They have five fingers and five toes. And that same child will say, but they're a lot different from us. Right. And the child can talk to his mom. The most advanced ape can't talk to his wife. Uh, there's a vast, vast difference. And so what we need to look at is not the similarities, but the vast differences. Um, but coming back to the, your, your earlier statement, I think there's another thing that we've got to nail down here, and that is the word evolution. Okay. Uh, the biologos people and most evolutionists are using a very slippery word here. They will use the word evolution to mean basically change. And uh, so you have natural selection and mutation, and this involves biological change to organisms, and this is proof of evolution. But when they, when they say evolution, they're really, or the, or the theory that they're really defending is microbe changing into a microbiologist over millions of years. But if you look carefully, <laughs> the examples they give are changes like uh, a bacterium developing antibiotic resistance in the in the hospital to the medicine that the doctor gives the patient right and what does that what does that resistant and uh, 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 bacterium turn into a bacterium of the same kind <laughs> right that, that doesn't explain where bacteriologists came from right and uh, you know they can point to the different size uh, or length of snouts on dogs or different amounts of hair, but that doesn't explain where the dog came from in the first place. It just shows that the, within the... Variation within the kind, as right. the creationists would say. So um, we're, we're getting, um, we're, we're being thrown um, truckloads of statements that have uh, ambiguous words, and that, that is uh, in the favor of the evolutionists. So it, it sounds like kind of a scientific throw all the oatmeal against the wall uh, approach to see what sticks. That, that's right. And if you make sweeping statements like uh, the the similarities between the chimp and the human genome prove absolutely that men evolved from apes, well, that kind of statement is so broad and so vague that it it can't be easily uh, challenged. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have something specific, and we have. Uh, articles on our website dealing with the specifics about, in particular, the uh, comparison of the two genomes. And it, it's not as straightforward and persuasive as the evolutionists at Biologos make it seem when you really look carefully at the details. Yeah, I, I was reading some of the articles on your website, and uh, one of the articles I read pointed out the fact that chimpanzees, whom we're supposed to be the most closely related to, they have 23 chromosomes and we have 22 and and so uh, they've they've got a little bit more DNA material than we do, uh, running it, running around inside of them. And uh, other other geneticists that I've spoken with basically make it clear that let's say that uh, you know uh, on a particular gene in the human genome you you've got the information necessary to build a liver. And he says they've told me that even if you were to take that that particular gene for building a liver, if you look across the different primate species, it doesn't occur in the exact same place. 
in other uh, in other primates. It, it might appear on gene number three in, uh, in in a particular type of ape, and gene number four, uh, fourteen on a, on a chimpanzee or a spider monkey. And so, you know, saying that there's similarities is kind of um, well, just not really speaking forward uh, all of the different relevant facts uh, regarding this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, again, it's the it's the uh, it's the um, uh, the broad statements, omission of details, uh-huh. and uh, ambiguous terms, and that's how evolution has uh, been, you know, foisted on the minds of people as a proven fact. <clears throat> excuse me, or truth, you know, okay. God's truth. Right. So, is it true that uh, if you're a scientist, you have to be an evolutionist? I mean, the way they make these guys make it sound like. Anybody with half a brain who understands any scientific facts whatsoever would automatically become a, 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 a somebody who subscribes to evolution, uh, and and those Christians who resist it aren't doing it on, on scientific grounds. Well, that's just uh, fallacious. There's a growing number over the last uh, thirty or forty years, and and really accelerating over the last two decades. There is a growing number of PhD scientists. Uh, the vast majority of them who uh, got their education under evolutionists and were evolutionists who no longer are because they see the massive uh, scientific problems with it. Um, You know, talking about this chimp DNA, let me just read to you a statement I just uh, found in one of my PowerPoint slides from uh, Professor Steve Jones, who's a prominent evolutionist in England. He said, uh, is man another animal? Um, he said, well, uh, in one sense, uh, obviously, yes. After all, we share 98.8% of our DNA with chimpanzees, and if that doesn't make us just another animal, then I don't know what it does. It's worth remembering, though, that we also share about 50% of our DNA with bananas, and that doesn't make us half bananas, either from the waist up or the waist down. Oh, man. So, uh... <laughs> you know, and, and that 98.8%, that's, that's highly debatable. It's it's fluctuating, you know, in 98 to 92, and uh, who knows for sure. Well, I, I can I can tell you this. If we found a human being with an extra chromosome, uh, it, it, uh, that, that probably wouldn't be a good thing. No, I, I would think that person would have some serious difficulties in life. Uh, man. Okay, so uh, let me, I mean, let me ask you this. I'm just kind of, I, as I was reworking through the, uh, this Giberson article, I mean, you're right. He makes these absolutely sweeping statements. For instance, one of the sw- statements that he makes is uh, that, um, that for more than two centuries, careful scientific research, much of it done by Christians, has demonstrated clearly that the earth is billions of years old, not mere thousands, as many creations, creationists argue. We now know that the human race began millions of years ago in Africa, not thousands of years ago in the Middle East, as the story in Genesis suggests. Really, has, a, have, has the human race been around for a million years and no. originating in Africa? No. And, and what is Guyberson? He's a biologist. Uh-huh. He's, not a, he's not a paleontologist. He's not a geologist. So he doesn't know that by his own investigations. He has assumed that because he has taken by faith what the scientists in the other field have said. I mean, and, what, and I, the, the, the dating comes from dating methods, which are based on assumptions 
that there's strong indication, scientific evidence, that those assumptions are false. And furthermore, the Bible also, the word of the Creator who's always been there uh, and who created everything, has made it very clear that he did not create man millions of years ago. And Jesus himself made that clear. Right. Well, Jesus, I mean, he believed in Adam and Eve. He believed in Cain and Abel. And uh, and he. I, know, I don't recall Jesus ever once deconstructing any of the uh, stories in Genesis, but always no. a put, a putting them forward as a, authoritative and true. And straightforward. He, he One of his most common uh, statements recorded in Genesis is, um, have you not read? And then he just quotes the scriptures. Right. And, uh, and another common phrase is, it is written. And then he quotes scripture, and he takes it at face value. Um, in in uh, Mark 10, Jesus was asked a question about divorce by the Pharisees. And in his response, he said, um, but for, he said, well, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because of the, your wives because of the hardness of your heart. But he said, uh, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And in a book that I co-edited with 13 other uh, theologians called Coming to Grips with Genesis, I have a whole chapter on Jesus' view of the age of the earth, and I show that that, that verse and the, the words he uses there show that Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were right back there at the beginning of creation. Well, not, I mean, bi- not billions of years after the creation. Well, I mean, don't you understand? Come on. The the Bible was written by a bunch of uh, toothless, uh, uh, you know, people who lived out in a desert climate. I mean, obviously the sun melted their brain. They don't understand the scientific uh, process and stuff like that. I mean, ob- these are just fables put together by, uh, bo- you know, shepherds who were bored out of their minds. Well, that's uh, similar to what Guyberson actually says in his article. He yep. says... Uh, it's an ancient story that began as oral tradition for the for a wandering tribe of Jews thousands of years ago. Um, that is simply false. Um, you can find if if uh, your listeners uh, get just any uh, Strong's Concordance or Young's Concordance and look up the word myth in the New Testament, they'll find uh, or fable. They'll find uh, four places in the epistles where Peter and Paul clearly show that they understand the difference between myth and truth. And the uh, and Jesus, of course, as the second person of the Trinity, knows the difference between myth and truth, and he never treated the Old Testament as myth. There's no biblical evidence that it was. And furthermore, in Genesis 5.1, we have the statement, um, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Right. So Guyberson just assumes that it was oral tradition. He doesn't have any biblical basis or any other basis for that. It's purely a 21st century, arrogantly evolutionist assumption about man. And, and of course, you know, you're know you a heretic if you disagree with him. Um, it, 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 I, I talk with some of these guys. They take shots at me at Twitter. And, and <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so um, yeah, funny enough, the one thing I could say about the human race is that the creative and intelligent beings, and when I look at ancient archaeology, um, it doesn't go back millions of years. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, the you know humanity's 
uh, record that, that he left here on the planet. I mean, we don't see major cities from millions of years ago. We don't see major uh, artistic achievements and and things like that, and and you know, books and things that go back millions of years. They go back thousands of years. It seems like if you study the archaeological record, man, pretty much all of a sudden just pops onto the scene. You know, thousands of years ago, not millions. It, it, and he pops onto the scene very, very intelligent. Yeah. I mean, we still don't know how they made the pyramids. And uh, the ancient Greeks, they, they figured out the circumference of the earth, the approximate distance to the moon. They, they were very, very intelligent. So I, I just find it hard to believe if man's been around for millions of years that, I mean, uh, basically is is knowledge and intelligence just a recent development in our race or were all yep. of our, you know, all of our ancestors prior to just a few thousand years ago pretty much dunces? Well, that would that would have to be the evolutionary perspective. But again, it is contrary to God's own word. He says Adam was created uh, a gardener. He understood language. He could communicate with God. Mm -hmm. His son Cain, uh, his first son, built a city. Six generations later, Genesis 4 tells us, uh, one of the descendants of of Cain developed mining and metallurgy. And another descendant of Adam developed uh, musical instruments. Genesis presents us with a very different picture of early man than what the evolutionists assume. Right. Yeah, I just find it hard to believe that an intelligent species wouldn't leave itself a record of its intelligent accomplishments up until just about a few thousand years ago. It doesn't make any sense to me. Nope. Uh, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, when people try to mix evolutionary theory and Christianity, it seems like the Bible's always the thing that gets bumped aside. Uh, how is it? I mean, how come it's always the Bible and Christianity that have to make compromises and room for evolutionary uh, uh, for evolutionary ideas, but they don't ever make any room for uh, you know uh, the Creator in their in their well, way of looking at things? It's very simple. Evolution is an atheistic philosophy masquerading as science. It's atheistic assumptions imposed on the observations of the world, whether it's the living world or fossils or rocks. And um, it's therefore, as, it, as it's atheistic, it is therefore blatantly anti-biblical. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's no way to harmonize evolution with the Bible, just like you can't harmonize atheism with the Bible. So what what's at stake with those uh, Christians who are being bullied by this really bad science and really bad argumentation by like guys like Giberson uh, from uh, Biologos? What 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 what's at stake? What happens here? What what is at stake is exactly what you alluded to before. Christians are being asked to set aside their Bible, and so what is at stake is the authority and the reliability of the Word of God. And the, the, the Bible is being stolen from people. Um, they can still have it in their house, but they no longer can understand what it means because uh, evolutionary science now says it doesn't mean what it obviously appears to mean. Right. And once you start uh, undermining Genesis, you have undermined the foundations of the whole rest of the Bible, including the Gospel. And so if you look at Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15, Paul builds his doctrine of, of justification by faith, his, his understanding of salvation, on the fact that Jesus, the last Adam, came to solve the problem started by the first Adam. 
And if Adam was not a real person in a real garden with a real wife and a real tree, if that's all mythology, then Jesus died for a mythological problem. <laughs> and if he died for a mythological problem, he, then, then uh, he's, he's a mythological savior offering us a mythological hope. Right. The whole, the whole Christian faith collapses. Now, that's not to say that somebody has to believe in six literal days to be saved. No, you have to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to be saved. But that doesn't mean that Genesis isn't important, because Genesis is foundational to that gospel. And so a person who believes in Christ as their Lord and Savior but doesn't believe Genesis is being inconsistent, and they are really, they don't realize it, but they're really accusing their Lord of making a mistake, because Jesus clearly believed Genesis. All right, we're going to pause my interview right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. 
Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, evolutionary theory is not true. It's not science. It's just, it doesn't work. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. In fact, if uh, if you're uh, listening to this via podcast, then you will notice in your iTunes account 
There is a uh, a link to a financial update letter for Pirate Christian Radio for you to download. The reason I've done this, this is only the second letter that we've ever sent out since starting Pirate Christian Radio. And the reason I'm doing this is to let you know that, uh, well, we truly do need your support. We're in a drive now to get uh, between 350 and 400 new members of our crew in order to ensure the longevity of uh, Pirate Christian Radio as our expenses continue to grow, well, uh, so does our need uh, for you to uh, partner with us continue to grow. So uh, if download the letter, read it, uh, click on the links that are there, and support us. We truly, truly can use our help. Of course, uh, you know what it boils down to is visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Joining our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. 038. And let me thank you all for your support and for your help. Uh, even if you haven't supported us yet, and this is going to be your first time supporting us, let me thank you in advance. All right, let's continue with the balance of my uh, interview with Dr. Mortensen from uh, the Answers in Genesis organization and regarding Carl Guyberson Giberson from the Biologos organization, his claim that Jesus would be an evolutionist if he were alive today. Well, he is alive today, but here we go. Right. You know, what's funny is, uh, you know, when I was a young pup, when I was skinny and good looking, um, you know, uh, when I, I, I was a Christian and I flirted with, uh, you know, kind of the, the embracing of the Big Bang Theory and Christianity all mixed together and some of the popular you know, so-called apologetic books that were, you know, that were being kicked around, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago. And I was trying to hold on to this idea that the the planet is billions of years old and uh, and the Bible is true, but the more I studied the scriptures, the less I could hang on to that. Mm-hmm. And um and and you know it, in a very simple kind of way, I basically realized I'm foolish to hold a position of the Bible different than the the position that Jesus held because he was God in human flesh and proved it by raising himself from the dead. So who am I to contradict him? Right. And what, what, how is it consistent to say you believe in him as your Lord and Savior, but you don't believe what he said? And he is ultimately the author of the whole Bible, because he is the second person of the Trinity. And he says uh, in Matthew 5, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, when he said that, the New Testament wasn't even written. Right. He was referring to the Old Testament. Yep, that's right. So it's, it's all his word, and when we start denying portions of his word or mythologizing it or or symbolizing what is obviously historical narrative uh then we are undermining the credibility and authority of the whole bible and ultimately what ends up happening is is i think uh, that people lose you know no longer trust in christ for the forgiveness of their sins that's right and we're seeing that uh in in western europe great britain and north america where the gospel once flourished 200 years ago and had a huge cultural impact. What's happened over the last 200 years as the church has compromised with evolution in millions of years? We have seen growing anti-Christian attitudes, 
godlessness, immorality. I mean, Europe is is post-Christian, probably the most difficult mission field in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Britain is a spiritual mess, and America is rapidly descending down that same destructive path. Right. Yeah, it's because they've embraced a uh, they've embraced a mythology. You know, it, it's it, it, it's as if myth- this evolutionary thing is the equivalent of the uh, Zeus and Mount Olympus mythology that the Greeks held on to. Now we just, you know, that was actually a little bit more noble of a, of a mythology than the current mythology because, I mean, if you embrace evolutionary theory, then death becomes the mechanism by which we we're created. Exactly, and then the, the fall in Genesis 3 uh, actually you could say it becomes a blessing because the world today is a lot better than it was when when all the dinosaurs died and 90% of the other creatures. You know, it just, um, accepting millions of years of death destroys the Bible's teaching on death and the curse, and that then, again, undermines the redemptive work of Christ because Colossians 1 and um, Acts chapter Three talk about the fact that when Christ comes again, there'll be a restoration of all things. Mm-hmm. And um, Christ, Romans 8, says the whole creation is in bondage to corruption right now, but it will be liberated when Christ comes again. Right. So we're, we're really messing with the gospel when we accept evolution and try and fit it into the Bible. Yeah, I, I see the only way forward is to, take, is to tackle this thing head-on, the way you guys over at, at uh, Answers in Genesis are doing. Uh, okay, for for my audience who is you know the, who may not be scientists, I mean, what would be some good resources for them to stick their toe into the water to be able to look at good scientific works done by scientists that challenges the uh, that challenges evolutionary theory using good science? Well, um, for starters, is our website. Uh, www.answersingenesis.org, and uh, <clears throat> one of the top ribbons uh, near the top of the homepage has a, a, a button on it that says Get Answers, and if you click on that, you can get the, the most frequently asked questions uh, answered. Um, in terms of a book, a great book, actually it's a series of three, but they're called um, The New Answers Book, uh, volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3. Together they answer the 100 most asked questions. Uh, the first one answers the 27 most asked, like, well, what about dinosaurs? What about carbon-14 dating? Uh, where did Cain get his wife? Uh, were the days really literal? Um, what about the ice ages? What about distant starlight? These are the questions that people are asking today, whether they're you know, taxi drivers with an eighth-grade education or their Ph.D. scientists right. who, who object to Christianity. And if Christians can answer those questions, and each chapter is on a different question, and it's written for lay people and students, you don't have to be a scientist to understand the answers. You, you learn those answers, and you'll be able to answer most of the objections that most people raise. Okay. Well, what I'll do on my website at fightingforthefaith.com, I have a sidebar. I'll put uh, links up to uh, the uh, the answers uh, trilogy, if you would, you know, as a resource for our our listeners, because I mean, this, I, I I don't have any other way to say it. I see the gospel is at stake, and when uh, these guys have the hubris to try to basically uh, hogtie Jesus and throw him into the evolution camp, 
Uh, I mean, I, I I can't imagine what other lengths that they would go to to uh, you know to basically uh, try to support their ideology. But this, I mean, this thing can't be supported, and it's unbelievable. I mean, I've never seen anyone claim that uh, Jesus would be an evolutionist. That's kind of a yep. first for me. We're we're facing an all-out assault on on the Word of God, and it's coming not just from the atheists; it's coming from uh, among those who profess to believe in Jesus Christ. So and the Bible itself warned, Paul warned the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, that from among yourselves men will arise uh, teaching false things to draw the disciples away. Yep, and I think so that's this what... is nothing surprising. No, it's uh, the standard uh, way that the devil works. Uh, always with that question, did God really say? Exactly. It worked well with Eve, and it's worked ever since. <laughs> he he's like a one trick pony. That that's the that's Satan's one trick, and and so many people fall for it. Yep. So, well, thank you for coming on fighting for the faith. I, I will probably have you on again if these biologos guys continue with their hubris. But yep. uh, you know, I, I, I I'll say this: yes, all real truth, all true truth is God's truth, and God's word actually. When you uh, when you do the real science, evolution comes crumbling down, and it's God's word that explains where we came from and where we're going, and what Jesus was doing on the cross for us. If evolution is true, there is no right and wrong. In fact, it, with without without biblical truth, there's no such things as right and wrong and moral ethics. In fact, if we share fifty percent of our DNA with bananas, then all it takes is for somebody to latch onto that idea and basically say, "I can exterminate a bunch of my uh, millions of my political opponents or people who don't agree with my ideology," and I'm not really murdering them. I'm just peeling bananas. That's right. That's right. And you know, the two boys that killed uh, thirteen people and wounded twenty-seven others. In the 1999 Columbine massacre, right. that's exactly what they were doing. And the the boy in Finland who a few years later posted on his uh, on his website uh, uh, just a couple of days before he shot some kids in his own school, they were they were in their own words they were just acting out natural selection, and they said we're just animals. Isn't that what Hitler did? That's exactly what Hitler did. That's what. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, did in developing uh, the abortion mill of Planned Parenthood and uh, the eugenics that developed forcibly sterilizing people in the United States in, uh, prior to the Second World War. Uh, and the, uh, one of the relatives of Charles Darwin was mm. behind that. Yeah. It, it, if, if evolution is true, then we're just nothing but animals, and animals just do what they do there's no there's no ought there's only is right and we don't put you know my dog killed a, a squirrel the other day in the yard i didn't call the police and say i'm i'm sorry but we've got to put this dog in prison it just killed a <laughs> they, they didn't they didn't hire the uh, the squirrel aside uh, you know group at the police department come out to determine you know the cause of death of the squirrel that's right yeah, but <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong here okay um if evol- if somebody really truly radically embraces evolutionary theory and they're kind of you know screwy like somebody like a Hitler, 
wouldn't they be making the argument then that it would be in humanity's best interest to get rid of so-called unwanted people via natural selection so that humanity can take that next big evolutionary leap forward? Isn't that always what's behind the thinking of a guy like Hitler or Stalin or Mao Zedong? That's exactly what's behind their, their thinking. And so, you know, we say that it's okay uh, to experiment on mice, but we don't think it's good to sp- experiment on people. Mm-hmm. But Hitler said, as a thoroughgoing evolutionist, what's the difference? Right. And so he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, and I... We, You know, we get rid of spare cats, so get rid of spare kids. My my dog uh, developed severe diabetes and blindness a couple of years ago, and so we took her to the vet and put her down. Right. Uh, so my my mom has uh, uh, incurable heart disease and glaucoma. So I should put her down? Oh no, my mom is made in the image of God. My dog wasn't. Huge difference. Right, but you know it's it's not too much of a leap to basically say, listen, I've got this grand vision for the next evolutionary stage of humanity, and we've got to get rid of. Uh, these backwards thinking Christians, because they're they're holding us back from us attaining that next evolutionary step in our greatness. Uh, That's right. You know, I I see that was the rhetoric behind Hitler and other guys like this, and evolution plays a key role in all of that. Yep, and we may see we may see uh, some serious persecution of Christians in this country in the days ahead. I mean, evolutionists like Dawkins and others are already saying that uh, creationists. Uh, are involved in child abuse for what we're teaching children. And um, so we we better be prepared to believe our Bibles so that we stand strong and faithful like our brothers and sisters in, in communist and Arab countries who are suffering for their faith. They're believing their Bible right right to their last breath. Well, we'll leave off on that positive note. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to be we need to be ready to stand for the truth, yeah. whether in life or in death. Yeah, I I see the mocking and the ridicule that you guys uh, undergo there at uh, Answers in Genesis, and I mean Ken Ham is favorite target of uh, people who are atheistic and and vociferously and angrily anti-Christian, and uh, it, amazing to me that. Uh, that you know they're so intolerant to us. Why on earth should we 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 be tolerant of their view? I, I just don't get it. Well, and we need to be very clear. Um, we are tolerant of them as people. We had two hundred and eighty uh, two hundred and eighty two hundred and eighty atheists come to the Creation Museum here in Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area, uh, two summers ago, and we got a letter from the student organizer of that group. Uh, afterwards, thanking us for how kind and gracious right. our staff were to uh, them as as guests. But what what do uh, so we're we're attacking the atheist position, right? The atheist arguments they are attacking uh, creationists personally, yep. uh, calling names and swearing and all kinds of things, and uh, that's just another evidence that their position is false. If their position was really true, they wouldn't have to attack people. They could just present their arguments. Right, and uh, if I remember correctly, long before uh, Dr. Wilder Smith went to uh, be with the Lord, uh, atheists and evolutionists didn't like uh, debating him. He he thoroughly would uh, trounce them any time they would step into the academic arena with him. And it's it, and that's what I find over and over again. A Christian who really knows his stuff 
uh, can not only stand toe-to-toe with these guys, uh, it, it, they're capable of showing that their position is untenable and not even supported by the evidence. And yet we're supposed to be shaking in our boots because uh, Carl Guyberson here is telling everybody that Jesus would be an evolutionist, and I yeah. beg to differ. Oh, yeah. He's already made it clear in, in Genesis that he wasn't. Right. And yeah. furthermore, there were evolutionary ideas way back before the time of Christ. So Darwin didn't come up with a new idea. His grandfather wrote a book about evolution, and uh, there was a book written in 1924 by Henry Fairfield Osborne, the American Natural History Museum in New York, entitled From the Greeks to Darwin. And he showed that all the essential uh, elements of Darwin's theory can be found in the, in the writings of the ancient Greeks before the time of Christ. So this is an old, old idea. Darwin just made it seem plausible with his uh, ideas about natural selection. With his, well, it, 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 with the with the rise of the Enlightenment materialist rationalist philosophies, it made you know it just it gave them a mythology that they can hang on to regarding our origins. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Like I said, I will probably have you on again in the future, and uh, thank you for your contribution. And like I said, we'll, we'll put links up to those books at uh, fightingforthefaith.com dot uh, com with today's program. All so. Right. Thank you, Dr. Mortensen. Uh, we'll be talking again in the future. I, I get that feeling. Okay, God bless you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, so that was my interview with Dr. Mortensen. What did you think? I, I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address, fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. All right, we're going to be right back. Sermon review coming up. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two, fighting for the faith sermon review time. Never before have I reviewed a sermon from this church. But I get the feeling they're going to be, uh, well, making regular appearance in our sermon review rotation. Cue up the music. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Church on the Journey in Mesa, Arizona. Pastor Jeff Kosak presiding. Name of the sermon, Inception Plan B. What alerted me to this uh, particular church? Well, their marketing that made it into the Museum of Idolatry, which I spoke about earlier in the uh, first hour. If you want to see it, go to a littleleaven.com. You can't miss it. All right, now as we're listening to the sermon, what exactly are we listening for? Well, who is he preaching about? Watch what he does with the biblical text. Watch who he makes the biblical text about. Now, Jesus, remember Jesus. Jesus, you know, that guy that claimed to be the God of the Jews, the old God of the Old Testament in human flesh, that guy, he chastised the, uh, the Pharisees because he said to them, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Yet they are the very scriptures that testify about me. And you refuse to come to me to have life. You want to understand the scriptures properly? Rule number one, the scriptures ain't about you. The scriptures don't give you the secret missing ingredients to help you enjoy, a, a, well, your life movie. Yeah, it's not what it's about at all. So you'd always know there's trouble when somebody reads a passage and then begins launching into how this is all about you achieving your dreams or something to that effect. I mean, after all, this is a movie. It's not a movie, a, a sermon with the name of a movie, Inception, as part of it. So without any further ado, here we go. Inception, Plan B, Pastor Jeff Kosick.
ready for that one? Today we begin our series called Inception. I am so excited for this month. It's going to be a great series. Before we get there, I want to take a, a look by, back just one. By the way, I saw the movie Inception, and um, I didn't particularly care for it. I thought it was a little bit convoluted and complicated, but, you know, that's just me. One week's time. Uh, how many of you guys were here last Sunday? Uh, it was a pretty incredible Sunday in the history of our church. Uh, we, uh, we announced our new identity uh, that we're moving forward with. Uh, okay, which- now listen to this part really carefully. This is part of the seeker-driven methodology. Seeker-driven methodology basically tells pastors, listen, you don't want to fly under a denominational name. I mean, denominations are dying. You, if you're a part of the Baptist church, you don't want the name Baptist in your in your congregation's name. No, 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 no. And if you're part of the Assemblies of God, yeah, you might want to drop that whole Assemblies of God thing. If you're Lutheran, well, get rid of that Lutheran thing. Presbyterian, yeah, you know how passe that is. No, no, no. You got to come up with some really cool kind of hip kind of name that from the brand you, that that way nobody is going to supposedly be able to tell what you is and what you ain't. Yeah, so that that's what's going on here. Listen. Which is Church on the Journey. Now, uh, we did have some clarification needed because through talking, me talking to people and some of our other pastors talking to people throughout that afternoon and evening, apparently I wasn't very clear. So I want to clarify just a few things. That's been known to happen from time to time. Uh, number one, we are in the process of changing our name to Church on the Journey. Okay, that's number one. Number two, yes, we're still going to be an Assembly of God church. Okay, that's not changing. Uh, there's no requirement in the Assemblies of God that you have to have Assembly of God in your name. Uh, in fact, our incorporated name will remain the same. We are still, we're not reincorporated. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Just want to point this out. Uh, that's always the standard line, isn't it? Um, I can tell you from, well, historical precedent, uh, from exact, from actually, you know, from real life examples. Here in the uh, the Missouri Synod, I'm a member of uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, not to be confused with the uh, heretical apostate uh, liberal, I don't even want to call them cousins, uh, in the ELCA, yeah. Um, we have about as much in common with the ELCA as light has with darkness. Um, we have as much in common with the ELCA as truth does with error. You, you get what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, so yeah, don't confuse us with that, but uh, here's the deal. In the uh, Missouri Synod, there's... A whole group of guys who've uh, made uh, Rick Warren or Bill Hybels their de facto bishop, or <clears throat> you know, and uh, and have bought into these seeker-driven methodologies. And the one thing I can tell you is is that all of these guys that have dumped the title Lutheran uh, or, or dumped the name Lutheran from their church's name, um, uh, they uh, just give them a little bit of time. It doesn't take much time at all. Um, Couple weeks, uh, maybe a year, um, and uh, they they are less Lutheran uh, than ever. It just, in fact, there's at, at, by the end of it, there's nothing distinctively Lutheran about them. So when you hear a pastor like this saying, "Oh, don't worry, you know, we're still assemblies of God," um, I you know I would just challenge that and say, "Uh huh, right." Then if you're still assemblies of God, then. Um, why are you ashamed of putting that front and center on your church's title? I mean, just, you know, something I've noticed. Incorporating, we're still going to be First Assembly of God of Mesa, Inc. Uh, That is still our incorporated name. That's not going to change. We're going to change our DBA, our doing business as, instead of Mesa First Assembly, which is... 
No, you're doing more than that. And the, the reason I'm going to say that is, is because the sermon that we're going to hear is not—there there ain't anything distinctively assemblies of God in the sermon that we're going to hear. In fact, this is your standard seeker-driven pablum that we're going to hear in this. So, yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I don't think there's anything distinctively AOG about what we're going to hear from uh, Pastor Cossack here. Which is our current DBA. We're going to change that to Church on the Journey. So really it's just our face to the world uh, becomes different and we become Church on the Journey and we're going to make that official at our annual vision night on February 27th. That's the last Sunday evening of this month. We want everybody to come out for that. All members, uh, if you are... Annual vision night, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that in any of the early churches. Vision night, you know, that, that one seems like a new feature are a member of Mesa First, we want you there because you're the one who's going to be uh, voting that uh, into reality. And everybody else, if you're not a member yet, you haven't made that step of commitment yet here at Mesa First, we still want you there. It's going to be a great night of vision, sharing about what God's plans are for the future, celebrating what God has done over the past year. It's going to be a great night. So come out February 27th that evening. You'll be getting more information as we go through this month. But I wanted to bring that clarity to you guys so you could uh, see that. Church on the Journey, if you weren't here last week, uh, that's what we talked about. Highly encourage you to listen to the message from last Sunday online. Uh, if you weren't able to be here, just so you can hear my heart and how God has led us to this place, uh, it's going to be a great time as we move forward and excited about where God is taking us as a church. A now, church today, on the journey. we're going to begin Inception. Uh, the basic concept of the movie Inception, this series is really not about the movie. Uh, we're going to be referencing dreams. Uh, and that's why we chose to call it that. But the basic concept... Yeah, okay, bait and switch. Yeah, I know you came here because we named the sermon series Inception. But yeah, we're not going to really talk about the movie. But we're going to talk about dreams. Oh, okay. The concept of the movie Inception is that by controlling and directing someone's dreams, that you could direct their future. You could change where they go and what they do by giving them thoughts. They had developed a technology to go inside the dream world of someone sleeping and plant ideas that became reality to them. It was really messed up, but it was really a good movie. And even though most of this was science fiction, one thing was very much true, and that is this. Dreams are powerful motivators. Dreams are huge motivating factors in our lives. And the direction our lives take are hugely influenced by our dreams. And the dream, you know, for example, a dream of being a big league ball player can cause a young man to practice hours a day and sacrifice a lot of other... Okay, uh, <clears throat> is there anything distinctively Christian about what we're hearing here? Um, no, there isn't. Um, can't... Hmm. Here's the deal. Uh, where's the big uh, the big dream doctrines uh, in you know in any systematic theology? I, I I have quite a few systematic theologies that I own, um, and I have yet to find any of them to talk about. You know, to have the section. You know, where you've got Christology, you got soteriology, you got eschatology, and um, I have yet to see an entire section called dreamology. Yeah. Um. In fact. Um. How many of you all have ever seen a um, a church's doctrinal statement? You know, like one of the major denominations. You know, we believe in uh, God as the triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Uh, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. Oh, and we believe in dreams. Yeah, there's nothing um, uniquely Christian here, yet alone from uh, AOG. Um, 
And in fact, this seems like kind of a distraction because I could find out about chasing after my dreams, uh, you know, by watching a Disney movie. I mean, um, isn't that what Cinderella used to sing? Because if you tell a wish, it won't come true. And after all, a dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. In dreams you will lose your heartache. Whatever you wish for, you keep. that uh yeah you know i don't need a crucified and lit risen savior to chase after my dreams um yeah but see, uh, that's ridiculous other activities in his life to realize that dream someday the dream of ending up with the man or the woman of your dreams can push you to become a better person and to change personal habits and to grow as an individual the dream of seeing a relative who's trapped by their past, be freed by God's love for them, can motivate you to have conversations that you might normally shrug off and ignore. But the other side of that coin is also very, very true. Just like dreams can be very powerful motivators, dreams can also destroy us when things don't go as planned. And that's really what I want to talk about today. You know, when your 20-year marriage ends in divorce and you still don't understand why, when you lose a loved one early on in life to cancer, when your kids don't... Uh, could it be because this world is cursed because of sin? ...follow a path to success, but they make destructive choices. When you're the clear front runner for a leadership position at your company and you get passed over for a VP's nephew. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we heard from Jim Peters. Uh, Jim and his wife, Debbie, and their friend, LaVon, uh, formed GTM, which is a missionary team that we support uh, out of our church. And we heard from them at the men's breakfast. And Jim came and he spoke to us. And he goes to military hospitals. One of the aspects of their ministry is they go to military hospitals. They've been to Germany and gone to that kind of first response military hospital where everybody gets sent before they get sent home. They've gone to San Diego there where a lot of the rehab gets done. And they give gifts to wounded soldiers. And they spend time with them. And Why do I feel like something's missing here so far? Oh, yeah, that would be God's word. That's what's missing. Yeah. And uh, one of the taglines that they use is, uh, they said, hey, the military prevents us from talking to you about Jesus, but there's nothing that prevents us from talking to him about you. So uh, what would you like us to tell him? <laughs> and uh, they just have a, a real, real cool ministry there. Um, but one of the things Jim talked about was their injuries and the potential that they had to destroy any hopes for the future that these soldiers once held. They come home and they're missing limbs, they're disfigured in, in many cases, their eyesight is gone, and they get to these places in life now where 
all their hopes and dreams for the future prior to going off to war have now been completely changed because their circumstances have changed, all in the name of freedom. And the common thread through every one of those examples, really crushing examples that I just shared, is that every one of these people I just mentioned has a choice. Every one of them. How will they respond to the adversity that they are currently experiencing? How does it affect... Um, Here's my question. Um, If you don't achieve your dreams in this life, is that a sin that will send you to hell? Is it that Jesus' death on the cross somehow makes it possible for for us to achieve our dreams? Uh, Where are all the clear passages that teach us that God's big plan is to give you a dream and then uh, it's your choice for you to hop on board in order to achieve that dream? their dreams for the future as they look ahead and and they 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 once had dreams and now things are different how does this affect that what if plan a doesn't work out and they have to shift to plan b what happens in those cases when everything that you thought was going to come to be reality Uh, what happens if you die without achieving your dreams do you go to hell now changes and you have to jump rails onto the plan b track What do you do in that case? Throughout this series, we're going to be looking at dreams, how they motivate us, how God directs us, and how we can respond to them. But today I want to look at Joseph and a character in the Bible that God helped to shape his future by giving him a dream of what it would be like and what happened when that dream seemingly came to a crashing halt. Okay, now notice what he's doing here. Okay, If you're familiar with the whole Joseph story, um, then you're going to recognize immediately that this is a story about Christ. This is about God taking a bad, adverse situation and turning it for good. This points us to Jesus, who wasn't sold into slavery, but we murdered on the cross. So, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the story of Joseph that, that points us to Christ. And this, the dream that Joseph had is never really considered normative uh, as far as the lives of many of the other patriarchs and saints. You know, it's a very unique situation that we see going on with Joseph. And so he's taking the Joseph story, allegorizing it, mischaracterizing it, in order to universally apply it to you. But that's not why the Joseph story was written. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. But, you know, don't tell Pastor Cossack that, you know. Everything came crashing down around him in a moment. Let's read this passage from Scripture. In Genesis 37, this talks about the dream that God gave Joseph, verses 5 through 9. And uh, one of the things we're doing now, if you guys didn't grab one, we have note sheets as you come through the doors. Uh, Great opportunity for you to just get the key points of the message, fill in the blanks there, take some additional notes if you want, but we have those every Sunday, and uh, please take advantage of that. Genesis 37, 5 through 9. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Okay, now, uh, who's Joseph? Who's he the son of? Why is this important? Okay, um, Joseph's the son of Jacob or Israel. And uh, how many brothers does he have? Um, And uh, how does that play? You know, what's the important stuff that's going on here? No history lesson at all. No pointing how what we're hearing here in the Genesis story and the Genesis account of the life of, of Joseph is that Joseph is, well, he is related to Israel, Jacob, 
Okay, the heel grabber, the guy who, yeah, that guy who was, who's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. These guys sound familiar to you. Jesus, you know, God always refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is Joseph's father. Okay, Jacob is the one who is in the direct bloodline of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Genesis story begins in the Garden of Eden. It begins with Adam and Eve rebelling against God and sinning by disobeying him, by being tempted by the devil, giving into his temptations, rebelling and disobeying God, and then humanity being cursed as a result. But in Genesis chapter 3, we have what is delivered to us there, what you know, many theologians refer to as the proto-euangelion, the proto-gospel, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so this promised one, you know, that God promised to Adam and Eve, who would ultimately, definitively defeat the devil, who tempted Adam and Eve, and through his temptation, they went into sin. Okay, so what happens then is is that we follow from the Garden of Eden the descendants of Adam and Eve, a particular descendants who followed God, who trusted in God for this promised Messiah, this anointed one, this one that would crush the head of the serpent, all the way through to Noah. Then you have the great flood, and only eight people survived that flood. As a result of the wickedness that multiplied on the planet, God punished and exacted judgment on the whole face of the earth. A few survived via the ark. They get off the ark, and then we pick up the genealogy again. We pick up this red, scarlet, blood-red thread through the Old Testament from Abraham, who believed God and it was accounted and credited to him as righteousness, whom God made a covenant with that he would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham, through the seed, the offspring of Abraham, referring to Jesus. So we go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, he has 12 sons, God uses to save them all. And this points us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's not that it, it, the Joseph story is somehow normative in your life. That God, you know, just like Joseph, God's going to give you a dream, and then there's going to be hardships and setbacks that are going to occur to you. Yeah, that's that's nowhere in the Bible does God promise that you're going to be given these kinds of dreams. In, instead, we already have God's will for our lives. Here's God's will for you. Are you ready? God's will, go get married, have kids, be a good dad, be a good husband, be a good wife, work for a living with your hands quietly, uh, enough to pay for your bills and to take take care of the needs of others. That This is God's will for you. Yeah, that's the, that's the big dream. In other words, God is glorified in the ordinary and the mundane. And we shouldn't despise it. We should embrace it and thank God for it. Because we thank God and we pray for, give us this day our daily bread. So God has made you a husband or a wife or an employee, a son or a daughter, or, you know, work as unto the Lord and love and serve your neighbor in the vocation that God has put you into. It's not hard at all. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. 
Soon Joseph had another dream. And again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. He has 11 brothers. You can see where this is going. And you can imagine the second dream went over as well as the first one did. Um, It's a powerful dream for the future that God gave him. God spoke to him through these dreams and showed him the position of authority that God was going to place him in one day. It was an incredible dream and an incredible future that God had in store for Joseph. And was it for Joseph's glory or for God's glory? Very important question to answer. But Joseph shared the dream with his family, with his brothers specifically, and his brothers admittedly a little justifiably freaked out. I mean, imagine this. Hey, I had a dream. You all bowed to me. It was awesome. Next day, he had another dream. Guess what? You did it again. Brothers aren't happy. And so the brothers end up selling him into slavery and convincing their father that he had been killed by wild animals. Hardly the beginning of a path to greatness. Not really the next step that Joseph imagined in seeing his dream become reality. In seeing seeing his dream? dream become reality these were you could say that these dreams were a prophecy okay that god directly revealed to him uh details of his life and this prophecy this word of god is probably what ended up helping joseph uh, survive the horrible circumstances uh, <laughs> and so what do we do What do we do when our dreams or God's dreams for us don't happen exactly like we think they should? What do we do when we have to go the plan B route? What do we do when things don't work out perfectly? Uh, Wait a second. Um, Joseph never went to plan B. Never did he go to plan B. Joseph was always on the singular plan that God had for him. This was not plan B. This was plan A. What are you talking about, sir? When our picture-perfect outcome seems a lifetime away because of where the road seems to be leading, can God operate through plan B? The first thing I want to challenge you with this morning is this. We can shatter dreams before they even have a chance to become reality. You know, sometimes God gives us dreams that are utterly ridiculous. In fact, I would contend that if you have a dream you think is from God and it's easily obtainable, it's probably not from God. Um, really? Um, got any Bible passages to back that up? You know, because like, what if somebody has a dream of, you know, getting married someday, having children? Not only is that obtainable, but we also have clear biblical passages that uh, that say that's commendable and fits within the will of God for our lives. God gives you dreams you can't handle. God gives you dreams you can't accomplish. God gives you dreams you're not capable of. Real, really, um, you got any Bible passages that say that? Um, because I've got Bible passages here that say that God wants us to work quietly with our hands. Um, yeah, it's, um, just one of those things. So, I mean, it sounds like it's easily obtainable to me. Um, how, how come you're making these claims that the thing that God wants us to have is something that 
is apparently not attainable. If you, in your strength and your wisdom and your intelligence and your talent, if you can pull it off on your own, where's God? God stretches us. Um, actually, uh, we wouldn't be able to do anything if God didn't give us the hands and the ability to do it. You seem to forget that God created us. So even breathing is actually a gift from God because God gave us the lungs to breathe with. Us. And he challenges us through the dreams that he gives us, like the probability of Joseph ever ruling over his family. By the way, the passage I was referring to is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. <laughs> Try this dream on for size. First, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll actually put a little bit of context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it, verse 11 is the key one, but <clears throat> here we go. Try these dreams on, see if they're so big and so whatever, you know. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed what is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There you go. Now, here's the deal. I can say with absolute certainty that it's God's will for us to aspire to, you know, to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands, walk properly before outsiders, etc. And I can say this because I have a Bible passage that says it. Where are your Bible passages that say that if your dream is is isn't too big for you, it's not from God? Hmm. He's not the oldest child. He's not next in line for the authority position in the family. He's low on the totem pole. We're not smart enough, though. We're not talented enough. And we're not strong enough to see God dreams become reality in our lives. And the problem here is that we try to fit God-sized dreams into man-sized ability. Uh, Maybe the problem here is that you're not correctly teaching God's Word. Maybe the problem is, is that this whole dream scheme of yours isn't actually sound biblical doctrine at all. Maybe that's the problem. Anytime that you try to fit a God-sized dream into man-sized ability, you're going to get depressed. Because you can't accomplish it. You can't do it. You are not God. We all need to be told that several times a day. You can't pull that off on your own. It will never happen. And we need to understand that God will give us everything we need to help those dreams become reality. When I was called into the ministry, I was freaked out. When God challenged me that I should be a youth pastor, I dismissed it. I said, not me. That's not for me. That's for my youth pastor. He was amazing. That's for that dude over there. I see what he's, he's got a youth group of like a thousand kids. He's incredible. No, I'm on the track I'm supposed to be on. I'm supposed to be an orthodontist. And I kept praying and seeking God. And, and man, God just kept hammering me upside the head again and again and again and again. And people called me and wrote me letters and talked to me in person and sent me emails. And hey, Jeff, you know, I always thought you'd make a great youth pastor. Never told you before, but I just, I really felt I should tell you. And God just told me again and again and again and again. And I went into youth ministry completely unprepared. I had no idea what I was doing. 
I mean, I, I, all I, I had been discipled growing up. I had followed my youth pastor's example, and so I just kind of did what I thought I was supposed to do, and God equipped me every step of the way. God gave me... So you're going into youth ministry unprepared, which, by the way, is, <clears throat> makes it questionable as to whether or not that's really what you should have been doing, because the Scripture makes it clear that uh, somebody who is, to, is in ministry is one who has studied and shown himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who knows how to rightly handle, rightly divide, rightly cut uh, the word of truth. So uh, were you prepared in that sense? But uh, the, the other piece of that is this, is that you're comparing your so-called calling into youth ministry to Joseph being called to save Israel? Yeah, I don't think the two are even remotely synonymous. In fact, what you're doing is you're emptying the story of Joseph of its real meaning in order to tell your story rather than the story of Christ. That's the problem with your handling of the text here. The tools I needed, God prepared me, God gave me the education that I needed down the road, and he's still equipping me. God's not done. I'm not fully formed. I'm not ready to go. I am learning every day of my journey what it means to live the dream that God has planted in my heart. And we all need to live the exact same way. God will equip you. If God calls you to do the work, God will give you the strength to do the work. But there's a couple of ways that we can react to where we get these ridiculous dreams. And I mean ridiculous in the best way possible. We can, there, I mean, there's no way, can I or will I ever be able to do that? So we put up barriers. I'm not smart enough or educated enough. The excuses come to our brains. And at this point, we can choose either of the two paths that are in front of us here. We have a choice to make. We could say, no way, God, sorry, but this dream can't be right. And we shut it down. We shatter the dream before it even has chance to become reality in our lives. And in doing so, we close the door on a God-sized adventure that not only would affect your destiny, but that of others as well. Close the door on a God-sized adventure. Again, <clears> the <throat> First Thessalonians chapter 4, aspire to li- uh, verse of chapter 4, verse 11, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, be dependent on no one, walk properly before outsiders. It's all right there in the text. You're not really actually doing a good job with the text, sir. Some of you have slammed the door shut on what God wants to do in your life and how he wants to use you. Gasp. No way. Horrible. And you've slammed it shut because of your own personal insecurities. And I want you to know, it's not about your insecurities. It's not about your abilities. It's about the God who has birthed that dream in you, and he will make it come to pass if you will just follow. Law. Um... Really, you have any Bible verses that say that God will make his dream come to pass if you will just follow? You got, you got any verses that actually say that? Because um, uh, I'm not recalling any particular ones that um, said anything of the sort. Um, but maybe I'm just closed-minded. Um, <clears throat> by the way, uh, let's take a look at you know somebody whose, well, dreams in his life really didn't happen all that well. And, I mean, let's just compare what you're saying here to, like, Jesus' teaching regarding the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16. I'm sure you're familiar with that particular story. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Let me me read this story to you. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked at his sores. The poor man died, and I'm going to stop right there. Okay? Now, up to verse 22, up to 20, you know, verses 19 through 21, if I were to just stop there and say, okay, and then the poor man died. Who was uh, the one who was saved? I mean, now, if we were to just compare them, you know, who was living his purpose? Who was having his dreams fulfilled? Well, it wasn't the poor guy, Lazarus. It was the rich guy. Because, I mean, the rich guy, he was clothed in purple, fine linens, feasted sumptuously every day. And that poor guy, I mean, obviously... God's dream for his life just didn't come to pass. I mean, he was sick. He was disease-ridden. He had boils on his body. You had dogs looking at his sores. I mean, talk about a dream for life. And here's the weird part about it is is that Jesus never points to the Lazarus guy, the the guy who was poor, and ever says anything negative about him about like, you know, things like he never was able to achieve the dreams of his life because, you know, he just didn't do what was necessary to his to achieve his dreams. Now, Jesus never even talks in those categories. Here's what it says. This is Jesus telling the story. So the poor man, that's Lazarus, died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried in hell. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. You had a life of vision, a purpose. of You fulfilled your dreams, right? And Lazarus, in like manner, well, he had bad things. Now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish there. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, and then he said, well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, Well, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Yeah, see, Jesus here isn't talking about that ultimate need of living your dreams. Because what we learn from this text is that despite the fact that that poor guy Lazarus, the disease-ridden one who who begged for money every day at the gate of the rich man, who had his sores licked by dogs every day, he, despite the fact that his dreams were never fulfilled in this lifetime, what did he have? He had repentant faith and trust in the Lord for the forgiveness of his sins. And that faith saved him. Because ultimately, the Christian message isn't about you achieving your dreams in this life. The Christian message is about believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you may have eternal life. Now, if you're familiar with um, 
you familiar with the Gospel of John? John explains why he wrote his Gospel. By the way, did the Apostle John, who spent three years with Jesus, okay, during his earthly ministry, when when uh, when the the, the the Apostle John wrote his Gospel, did he write the Gospel so that uh, you can you you by reading them you would be able to achieve you find your dreams for your life and the secrets to uh, succeeding? Yeah, no. That's not at all why John wrote his gospel. In fact, here's what John said. John chapter 20, starting at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Doesn't say anything about, you know, achieving your dreams or purpose or it's they're written so that you might believe in Christ. Now, is Pastor Cossack here, is he pointing us to Jesus Christ? Is he pointing us to the things that Jesus has done, even in the story of Joseph, so that we might believe in Jesus Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name? Because the, the Apostle John says that Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. See, we learn from from Jesus that even Lazarus, who was poor, never achieved his dreams, uh, was diseased and bedridden. Despite all of that, he had, he believed. And by believing, he had life in Jesus. He had repented and had received the forgiveness of sins. Is this what Pastor Cossack is preaching? Or is he preaching about, well, delusions of grandeur? That's all you need to do. The other option we have is this. We can shake our heads and say, God, I don't understand, but I'll play along and see how this works out. God, I'm in. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to lead me, I will follow. And one thing to remember is that God never gives us a task without enabling us or changing the situation for us to accomplish that task. Joseph's dream did not come true right away. Instead, God prepared him. God's will is often a process, not a final destination. God's will is a process. We need to be people of that process. I mean, that's what our new name is all about, Church on the Journey. It's not about having arrived. It's about a lifelong process of becoming the people God has designed us to be, about becoming more like Jesus. That's what it's all about. And it's an ongoing process. Erwin McManus said this, the process... Oh, oh, Erwin McManus, yeah. There we go. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Pastor Cossack here has uh, been imbibing heavily in the leadership network, uh, Willow Creek purpose-driven networks, and uh, it's obviously tainted his uh, theology and doctrine to where he's um, being influenced by false teachers. The process of becoming the person God wants us to be usually doesn't come from success, success, success. It's loss, success, failure, success, heartbreak, success. Just want to remind you, Erwin McManus's uh, note here is not actually found in the Bible. Disappointment, success. That's the process of becoming the person that God wants you to be. And here's the second point that flows right out of that. We can't judge the reality of God's plan 
based on circumstances or the reactions of others. Don't judge whether God's dream for you is true based on your circumstances, what you see happening around you, or the negatives that people are speaking into your life and specifically into the dream that God has given you. I don't see the scripture teaching us that God promises us some big dream for our lives. You're preaching something that isn't even the Bible. You've, you've kind of left that important note out, didn't you? Sometimes the dream that God gives you will cause a negative reaction from other people. Sometimes when you share that dream, Joseph shared this dream with his family, and the hatred for Joseph increased to the point of violence. His brothers lashed out at him. They sold him into slavery. In their minds, the brothers... And this story wasn't written so that you can be like Joseph. We're stopping the dream by getting rid of the dreamer. Now, people may not try to get rid of you, but they'll try to get rid of the dream. Sometimes people will try to stop you with negative talk. And let me just speak this into your life. Don't ever surrender your dream to the noisy negatives around you. Don't ever. Oh, boy, this sure does sound, uh, it doesn't sound godly at all. This isn't Christian sanctification. This isn't Christian doctrine. This isn't even a biblical sermon at this point. This is just pure ego puffing up delusions of grandeur based upon a misreading and mishandling of the story of Joseph. Never do that. There will always be negative speakers in your life. If Nehemiah had surrendered his dream to the noisy negatives, he would have stopped rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. There were negatives all around him trying to distract him, tear him away from what God had called him to. And he says, no, I am on a mission. I will not come down from this wall even to speak with you for a moment because I know what you're all about and I know the negative stuff you're going to speak into my life and I won't do it. I'm going to keep pursuing the dream that God has given me. Don't ever surrender your dream to the noisy negatives around you. People, you know, sometimes they won't even talk negatively. They'll just be unsupportive or they'll be silent when you talk about the dream God has given you. But you can't allow that reaction to slow you down. If this is what you believe God wants you to do, if you truly believe that God has given you a dream and it lines up with Scripture, there's a key, okay? If, it, if it's in line with Scripture and what God has called all of us to... What do you mean by in line with Scripture? I'm Seriously. So if I have a dream about saving Egypt, I mean, what are you talking about? Then keep going, and those shaking their heads will eventually see God's plan become reality. They just don't have the joy of being a part of it. Keep your ears open to God and keep your attention focused on him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. That's what it's about. You want to stay true to the dream, you keep your eyes locked on Jesus. Um, yeah. Notice here we're beginning, we get a verse, a single solitary out of context verse from Hebrews chapter 12, which, by the way, kind of skips over all of the things that um, happened in Hebrews chapter 11, which, by the way, I'm going to share with you some of them because, you know, <clears throat> This is talking about the faith that's described in Hebrews, not this delusions of grandeur faith that Pastor Cossack has been imbibing heavily in in the seeker-driven movement. Listen, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith, that's trust, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. 
For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith Though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, without trust in Christ, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then Hebrews 11 goes on to explain all of these amazing things that the Old Testament patriarchs did. But then it it kind of ends on <clears throat> this note. Well, Hebrews eleven thirty two. Let me fast forward uh, a little bit here. Um, watch the change here. And what more shall I say? From for time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Now, this all sounds great, right? Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some, wait a second, this is what it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. That's the end of Hebrews 11, talking about the big dreams that God has for your life. Why don't you tell us about how God might have the dream of having people being flogged, beaten, persecuted, imprisoned, stoned to death, sawn in two, killed with the sword because of their testimony and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, I don't think he's going to do that. Hebrews 12, 1 then, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses of those who by faith conquered kingdoms and were tortured for their faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that the passage that he quoted from, Hebrews 12, tells us about Christ and his cross, and how Jesus set the example that we should, you know, that, you know, despise even our own lives so that we might have him. Is that what you're hearing from this guy, though? Because he's the one who pioneered your faith, he birthed that faith in you, and now he's perfecting your faith. He's perfecting your stick to your ability to keep on keeping on no matter what the circumstances or how much adversity comes your way. This isn't Christianity. This is a completely different message. God will see you through. And sometimes you'll need it. 
In fact, we're all going to need that. I, need, I have moments just about every day where I need God to see me through because I'm not capable. It's God working in me that realizes the dream that he birthed in me. Because the next part of this story... Uh, where's all the big verses in the Bible that talk about God birthing dreams in us? I, I don't see any of those passages. In Joseph's journey involves rejection, betrayal, slavery, and prison time for Joseph. This is what he has to look forward to on his journey towards God's dream becoming reality for him. The journey to- On his journey towards God's dream being reality for him. Unbelievable. Towards the dream was not easy for him. He had to grow up, he had to mature, and he had to develop total dependence on God and God alone. And this, this is the thing we often miss. This is the thing that so often escapes us. And that is this, all of these things, everything I just mentioned in the life of Joseph, the rejection, the betrayal, the slavery, the prison time, all of those were critical pieces of the puzzle that likely would not have come about, would not have happened if he had stayed home where he was spoiled and provided for. If Joseph had not been kicked out of the nest, he would have never gotten to the place of growth to become the man that God needed him to become. You see, it was through his brother's betrayal. It was through the adversity. It was through the trials. It was through the time in prison that God changed Joseph into the person he needed to be in order to see that dream become reality. God grew him. He put him through a process to form him into the person he needed to be to live the dream. God's will is as much about the person we're becoming as it is about where we're going. God's will is about... Notice he's making all these assertions about God's will, but he's not giving us any texts to support it. Who you are now and who you will be tomorrow and who you will be the next week and the next month and the next year. God wants you to continually be growing into that person. That's his will for your life. So many people get caught up on this. Well, what is God's will for my life? Become more like Jesus. That's God's will for your life. Yeah, can you give us some details? Um, The reason why I say that is because uh, it's really clear. One of the things the Bible tells us about Jesus is that he was sinless. What's a sin? Uh, Breaking of God's commandments. So if you want to know what a sin is and what a good work is, you look at God's law, and then you can figure out more about what Jesus is like. So why don't you give us some examples, you know, from you know, God's law of what is and isn't a sin and point out how Jesus was able to live sinlessly. Notice all of this is law, by the way, that he's preaching. He's, and this isn't even a valid use of the law. The law I'm recommending is third use, which is the, the Christian use, the, Christ, the only Christian use. Um, but there's more to the law than just third use because the primary function of the law is to convict us of our sin, to show us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And only Christians then can look at the law and go, okay, that's what a good work is. So you you, you got to just—don't just say, be more like Jesus. That's just ridiculously vague, Pastor. If you would actually just preach God's Word instead of making all these assertions without backing it up with biblical text, you might actually be helping somebody. I know that's really reducing it down to its most fundamental principle, but that's it. 
What's God's will for your life? Become more like Jesus. If today you become more like Jesus than you were yesterday, you're living God's will. Don't get so freaked out about, well, what about this? And what do I do about this? What do I do about this? Every day, try to become more like Jesus. Seek him first. Everything else will fall into place. That's God's will for your life. Perhaps the journey to your big dream will be difficult. Now, hopefully you won't end up in prison, but it could take you through experiences that could cause doubt or could cause despair. God did not abandon Joseph, and God will not abandon you. You need to know that. You need to rest on that promise that God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. No matter how difficult things get around you, it's not because God has left you. It's because God is seeing you through that difficult circumstance. Don't stop believing in the dream. And don't ever stop believing in the God who gave it to you. Joseph's dream was a big one. It was an unbelievable glimpse into the future that God had planned for him. It was huge. It was massive. And when it all came true, and it did all come true one day, in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, Joseph said to them, to his brothers, because they're all freaking out because they're having to come and humble themselves before Joseph, who is now second in command in all of Egypt, and they're coming to him and asking for help to give them food. And so they're freaking out, and Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph recognized the hand that God had in everything that happened. He was leading Joseph. He was shaping Joseph. He was recreating him every step of the journey. And my question is, are you willing to dream big for God? Yes, there may be disappointments, perhaps even ridicule in your journey, but if we will hold true to the course that God has placed us on, it will be an adventure that only God can provide and will end in dreams becoming reality. Another reason we can't ever give up on God-given dreams is because of this. Our faith must rest on God's identity, not on his activity. Our faith must rest on God's identity, not activity. We tend to think we know so much and we see so much, but guys, we are so limited in our perspective, in our scope, in what we're capable of grasping and comprehending. We are so, so limited, whereas God's perspective is infinite. We see just a portion. He sees the entire picture. There's a Rob Bell is a, a pastor uh, who does these video teachings that are really, really powerful. And he did a full-length one called Everything is Spiritual. And in this... Quoting Rob Bell positively. This teaching, he talks about God's perspective and how he sees things. And uh, he used a dry erase marker with which he was writing at the time. And it, he, he just talked about how we sent, see things very linearly. He talked about time and how as, as human beings, we are... We're, we're not even one-dimensional when it comes to time because one dimension is being able to go forward and backward, okay? Two dimensions is left and right. Three dimensions adding up and down, okay? That's spatial, you know, dimensions. There's one, two, and three. Now, in time, we can't even go two directions. We're half-dimensional when it comes to time. All we can do is move forward. That's it. We can't go backward. 
We can't even go faster forward. All we can do is just move forward. That's it. Whereas God, who created time, is outside of time. He is, he is beyond time. He's outside of time's dimension. And so he sees, imagine, imagine a world, and this was a book written, I think, in the either late 1800s or early 1900s called Flatland. And, and the guy wrote this book presuming a world where everything was flat. <laughs> they, they lived in two-dimensional space. And he talked about, he says, what if I were to take this marker and introduce it into their world? And here's, the, here's their world. And he goes, Okay, so you take this marker, which we know is a marker, and what do they see? Circle. It's not a marker, it's a circle. But what if one of those people were to say, well, you know what, I think that circle could really be a marker. Everybody else says, well, how do you know that? Do you have any proof? No, I just have this feeling. I think the circle could be a marker. And so they go on, and he goes on, he builds this whole thing, and here's the thing. We see a circle. Now, you turn it this way, and, and, and what do you see? What's the shape of it? It's, it's a rectangle, really. Okay, so now we have a circle. We have a rectangle where God looks at it, and he just says, yeah, it's a marker. We see time, and we see, well, this doesn't make sense. It's not working out. I don't get it. You won't. You can't. You're not equipped. We see half-dimensionally. God looks at the whole thing and says, yep. God, how does God know the future? He's there. He's outside of time. We're moving through time. God just looks at time and goes, there it is. We can't get that. But that's God's perspective in comparison to ours. It's like you're a tiny little thread that woven together with other threads make a piece of yarn that woven together with billions of other pieces of yarn form this massive tapestry and all you see is your little thread. God sees the whole thing. And so we can't get it. Our faith has to rest on the fact that God is bigger than our circumstances. That God sees it all. If we're going to believe in God's plan, then we also have to trust in his timing. But everything around me is falling apart. Matthew 6, 25. Jesus said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Okay, what you- what he, he's quoting here Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Classic text that constantly gets misquoted. Okay? Let me read it to you in context. If you have your Bible, flip on over to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And um, let me scroll down here. Um, I'll pick up at Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. That's the punchline here. So here all this anxiety, all this worry, all of this stuff, and Jesus chastises them not for not having enough obedience. He chastises them for not having faith in God. The children of Israel died in the desert because they didn't have faith. Read Hebrews chapter 3. O you of little faith. Faith, Jesus said, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It doesn't say, and your righteousness. It says, his, the righteousness of God and his. And all these things will be added to you. Where do we find God's righteousness? Remember, notice the, the, the analogy here, okay? Talking starts with clothing, okay? And then it says that God knows you need these things. He clothes the field. He will clothe you. You bet your bippy he's going to clothe you because the thing that God clothes us with is the very righteousness of Christ. It's given to us as like garments of righteousness, robes of righteousness, covering our sin, our shame, our guilt, and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. So our sin was imputed to Jesus as if he was the sinner. He alone is the sinner. And when we are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, his righteousness is given to us as if we're the ones who lived it. Jesus is the sinner. We are the righteousness of Christ. So when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his, God's righteousness. Jesus is chastising them for not having faith and trust in him because Jesus came to save sinners. And all of that anxious stuff about the things of the world, knock it off. Shows your lack of trust and faith in Christ. Your your Heavenly Father knows you need all of those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be taken care of. That's what Jesus is saying here. Let's see what Pastor Cossack is going to do with this now. 
he's really saying here is not that you shouldn't be concerned about the fact that you've just lost your job, that the economy is tanking, that your marriage is unraveling, that your kids are straying, or that your friend is dying. God's not saying that. What he's saying is, I want to give you a different perspective. I'm bigger than those things. I want to help you retrain your mind. I want you to trust me. We tend to think that God is only with us when things are working like we think they should. And we- uh, notice he's, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's trust for a particular thing, you know, and all that other stuff gets bundled into it. When all of our life evaluation charts are moving up and to the right, when every factor that we evaluate our lives by seem to be going in the right direction, we think that our plan B situations are signs that we're not where God wants us to be. We think our suffering is a sign that we're getting something wrong, not evidence that God is at work to teach us and eventually to bless us. But Joseph got it right. In the middle of one crisis after another, Joseph made one very critical decision that is just as critical for us, and that is this. He chose to believe in the who rather than the what. We need to place our trust in the who, not in the what. To trust the God of the circumstances instead of the circumstances. Why are you going through what you're going through? I don't know. Is what you're going, is what you're doing right now, is it God's will for your life? I don't know. Will it be over soon? I don't know. And I wish I could give you better answers to those questions. I wish I could just speak into your life right now and say, hey, just wait a few more days. It'll all be over. But the reality is I don't know. I don't have answers for you. You may not know now, and you may never know. In this life, many of your questions simply won't get answered. But through it all, God himself will never change. That is why our faith has to be on God's identity and not his activity, because God is good. God is perfect, and God's plans are best. And there is no greater place that we could place our trust than in God's plans and God's dreams for our lives. Dream God-sized dreams and rest in the assurance that if God gives you a dream, he will see it through to completion in your life. All you have to do is fix your eyes on Jesus, follow him, ignore your circumstances, deal with those, and pray to God for strength to accept the adversity that will come. But continue on that journey, and God will make those dreams become reality in your life. He is the God who is faithful. He is the God who keeps his promises. He is the God who is with us at every moment, and who at this very moment is working all... Cue sappy music. ...all things together for our good. Even when the bottom seems to be falling out, and bad news keeps your head spinning even in the middle of a plan B. We really only have one task. We really only have one calling. Do what you would do if you were certain God was with you. That's what you need to do. Do what you would do as if you were certain that God was with you. Why? Because he is. God is with you. God is with you. But my marriage is unraveling. God is with you. Uh, You're making all these claims. Uh, What if you're not a Christian? Is God with them? 
but I lost my spouse and I don't know how I'm going to make it. God is with you. I haven't had a job in 18 months and I don't know if we're going to keep our house. God is with you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what adversity you're facing, but I do know one thing above everything else that I know in this life, and that is God is with you, and he always will be. Look to him. Don't run from God. Don't run from the dreams. Run to the only one who is capable of seeing you through to the other side. God is with you. Well, there you go. Um... First sermon I've done named Inception. Sure, there'll be more. (sighs) Complete mishandling of the biblical text. Jesus was barely present at all, and we heard nothing about Christ and him crucified for our sins. (sighs) Tragic, narcissistic, self-centered, me-centered way of reading the biblical text, and this is the kind of preaching that sends people to hell. Literally. I pray for Pastor Cossack and church on the journey there in Mesa, Arizona. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. Uh, by the way, no gift is too small. Uh, you know, And we've specifically set it up so that um, those of you who are crew members, it's only $6.95 a month. It's it's a wonderful way to support us, and it helps us get through those lean times. Um, if you're not already a crew member, please, please join our crew. And there's some good benefits to that uh, that you'll see, especially coming up at, you know, this month and you know, on into the months ahead. We are frantically in the process of, uh, of publishing you know, some EPUB and Kindle books that uh, that all of our crew members will get at no extra charge, um, you know that uh, that so that you'll have you know the benefits of uh, some really good sound biblical doctrine and theology uh, that we're republishing for you to enjoy and to uh, grow and learn from. So um, if you uh, if you're a crew member again, that none of these none of these works will cost you an extra penny. So. That's a good reason to join our crew, plus $6.95 on a monthly basis is not a lot of money. So if you're not a member of our crew yet, please join our crew. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution or specify the amount that you would like to contribute to Fighting for the Faith, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button on our website or uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and you join our crew, visit our website, click on the Join Our Crew button. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to email me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of our sins. That's the thing we need to be preaching about. Amen. Amen.